Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, 16 November 2023. This is the birthday of my dear sister. We're talking about natural killer cells, so we're in biomedical portrait number six, and we're going into, I think, chapter six. So recall that we're discussing a paper where there's an inborn error of immunity coupled with an inborn error of metabolism. So we're going to go deep into this paper, demonstrate how alterations in bioenergetics plays a role in the faulty patterning of natural killer and cytotoxic T lymphocytes. So we're at that point where we're discussing uh, ACAD. Remember, that's this... uh, Acyl-CoA dehydrogenase. Now, there's an ACAD isoform 9 that specifically is associated uh, with this uh, topic we are now involved in. And, you know, again, it is a natural killer cell as well as a cytotoxic T lymphocyte disorder. So it falls into this larger category of hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytoses. And it's largely a familial type of disease. It's a genetic disorder. That's why it's part of the IEI series. And there's multiple types of it. We, we talked about it last time. But again, it defines itself and down to NKs and CD8 positive T cells, which are CTLs, right? So... Um, <clears throat> Remember that we were talking about ACAT. That's a de- first dehydrogenase and fatty acid beta oxidation, which typically occurs in the mitochondria. You also know um, from my previous lectures, hopefully, or from if you've had a good biochemistry series, there's also fatty acid oxidation that occurs in the peroxisome. And also, you know that in mammalian systems, um, animals in general, fatty acid synthesis occurs primarily in the cytoplasm, yet complex lipid synthesis occurs in all the other organellar systems. Endoplasmic reticulum, mitochondrion, Golgi uh, apparatus, and the peroxisome, as well as even some reactions in the plasma membrane those specifically associated with sphingomyelin metabolism and the alteration of head groups in all of the phosphoglycerolipids we were talking about anastol phosphates very recently. That should come to mind. So <clears throat> we're linking this ACAD um, dysfunction to natural killer cell and cytotoxic T lymphocyte dysfunction. I want you to recall that gluconeogenesis requires that you start with a non-carbohydrate precursor, and that non-carbohydrate precursor could be an amino acid, an alpha-keto acid, but it cannot be in the mammalian liver, in the mammalian system, and animals in general. You cannot synthesize, the cell will not synthesize um, glucose from fatty acid. Um, There's a reason for that. I'm going to get involved in it once again, explain to you why there's a pathway 
essentially it's the glyoxylate pathway, which is found in a unique type of peroxisome called the glyoxisome in higher plants, particularly in oil seeds, germinating oil seeds, uh, and also uh, occurs in a glycosome in trypanosomes. So these organelles that we talk about in the animal cell have potential to differentiate into subspecies of those organelles. So the glyoxisome is essentially uh, very closely related to the peroxisome. I'm going to get into that later. But <clears throat> what I want you to keep in mind is if fatty acid oxidation is linked to corruption of natural killer cell activity, we could be talking about the fact that the um, energetics that will be promoted, that is ATP synthesis, because of fatty acid oxidation, could be the key component there. But you know that immune cells in general, because we've talked about this recently and at great depth, <coughs> often switch from fatty acid oxidation to glycolysis when they are activated, when they're actively promoting the, whatever role they're playing in the immune response. That's because glucose is easily taken up by the cell, and glycolysis is a reaction that doesn't require any kind of sophisticated translocation of substrates. Glycolysis occurs entirely within the cytoplasm, but the reactions leading away from it, where most of the energy can be derived, such as the tricarboxylic acid cycle, of course, is going to require pyruvate metabolism in the mitochondrion. Pyruvate dehydrogenase making acetyl-CoA, and also to some extent pyruvate carboxylase for the synthesis of oxaloacetic acid. So the TCA cycle could start with the um, the OAA combining with the acetyl-CoA making citrate. Right. So. What we're talking about here is that's related to the whole idea that gluconeogenesis can be linked to fatty acid oxidation. When fatty acid oxidation is the major form of production of reducing equivalents in NADH and FADH2 for the reoxidation electron transport chain within the mitochondrion so that ATP can be synthesized by complex 5, <clears throat> that at the same time that um, whole system is in place, right, where NADH and FADH2 are used to generate ATP, we're not talking about the carbon there. We're talking about the oxidation of the fatty acid. So the reducing equivalents, moving the electrons, driving, into, driving them into molecular oxygen to synthesize H2O, and at the same time, the proton pumping ATPase activity is synthesizing ATP in the mitosol. The carbon does not end up in glucose from fatty acid oxidation. But ATP is necessary for gluconeogenesis. So fatty acid oxidation does promote gluconeogenesis. That's the point. Now, if the natural killer cell is going to be using glycolysis when fully activated, why would gluconeogenesis, an enzyme of gluconeogenesis like fructose-1,6-bisphosphatase, if its deficiency or alteration or mutation 
would have, would have a negative effect. Well, it's because recall the fructose 6-phosphate, the product of that reaction, can also run into the oxidative pentose phosphate pathway. That's correct. We talked about that recently. And when that occurs, the can drive the flux of that system, or in fact, either directly by fructose moving into the OPP or by fructose ultimately being isomerized to glucose on the way to gluconeogenesis. Because if that occurs, glucose 6-phosphate then can be made available for the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt in a natural killer cell or in a CTL. Okay? And the OPP is necessary for the production of ribose 5-phosphate, you know that, for the production of nucleotides, including <coughs> ribonucleotides necessary for transcription and also the production of NADPH, right? NADPH is necessary for all the reductive biosynthesis necessary for protein synthesis to be carried out. And protein synthesis is a major issue for natural killer cells. Even though the granzyme and the perforin and the other granule polypeptides, etc., are essentially already synthesized in those granules, ready for export. Remember that the natural killer cell can kill multiple copies of a transformed cell or a virally infected cell before it's used up. That means there's going to be some transcription translation going on. And that's also, recall, in association with the production of cytokines, pro-inflammatory cytokines, which is another major role of NKs and CTLs. Okay? That's going to require NADPH. All right. All right. So now you get the idea why gluconeogenesis isn't the net synthesis of glucose. The natural killer cell is not going to then synthesize glucose and then it'll just tip right into glycolysis. It's not how it works. So you're not going to be storing glucose synthesized that way, but you could be utilizing glucose through other ramifications of other pathways. That's my point. Okay. So it's important for you to understand how this is functioning. Now, in this paper we're discussing here, remember that there was a protein called RAB27A. Remember, RAB is a, is a GTP binding protein. So, and that it was involved in the processing of the granules so that the granules could ultimately go to the immune synapse and release their contents. Remember, the RAP27A interacted with that other protein um, and combined, it was a membrane-associated interaction through the layers of the F-actin that would then allow the migration of the granules and ultimately the exposure to the immune synapse. Remember that, okay? So <clears throat> there is a hypomorphic variant of the RAB27A in these diseases associated with NK cells, okay? That's how this whole thing got started, it seems. Now, interestingly, that variant is part of the metabolic disease pack background that's associated with pigment distribution in melanocytes. And I brought this up last lecture. 
And when melanocytes are involved, there's other proteins besides RAF27 that has to interact with MUNC134. Remember, that's the whole um, grant, the whole possibility of generating that granulatic event, right? Those two proteins have to interact. MUNC13-4 and RAF27A. But for melanocyte transport intracellularly in the NK cells or in the CTLs or in other cells as well, the RAF27A has to interact with MLPH, which is also known as SLAC2A. It also has to interact with another protein called SLP2. That's for melanocyte movement. So the hypomorphic mutation that occurs to RAB27A is playing a role in this acquired immune disease. And the acquired immune disease, basically, remember the readout of it, the pathophenotype of it, is that prone to infections, prone to cancer, too, if the if the patient lives long enough. Remember, this is a very dangerous disease. Right? So when I keep on talking about hypomorphic variant, what's a hypomorphic mutation? Do you remember this from genetics? It's a mutation where the altered gene product possesses a reduced level of function. Either that or it's expressed at a reduced level. That's what hypomorphic means. When you have a hypomorphic mutation, you still make the product, but the product is damaged in some way. It's not as powerful. If it's an enzyme, for example, or something wrong with the catalytic of that maybe, or allosteric control, or if it's a cytoskeletal protein, or if it's a signaling protein, its function is somehow disarrayed. It's, it's less functional than it should be. Likewise, a hypomorphic variant also means you could just simply have less of the protein. Again, you have to have a certain concentration of the polypeptide for it to be able to carry out all of its functions, right? All right, so now you get, just so you're aware of that. Now, remember this ACAD9. It encodes a member of the acylcoidehydrogenase family. Remember, this is going to be a part of the complex diseases we're looking at here. Remember? These are diseases which relate to natural killer cell inactivation, right? Okay. So back to the ACAD just briefly. Members of that family of the acylcoidehydrogenase, remember they're going to localize to the mitochondria, and they're going to catalyze the first and actually considered rate-limiting step in fatty acyl-CoA beta-oxidation. Now, the ACAD9 is a member of one of those long-chain dehydrogenases because that encoded protein is activated uh, is active, excuse me, for substrates from palmitoyl-CoA, that's 16-colon-0, through all the long-chain unsaturated substrates, 18-colon-1, 18-colon-2, 18-colon-3, 20-colon-4, 20-colon-5, 22-colon-6, for example, you see. Now, RAB27A, remember, just to remind you of this, because we're going to get into these phenotypes of these patients right now. And we're going to be talking about those two proteins, and also you already know the bisphosphatase. RAB27A, its exact function is as an intracellular vesicle transport protein. It has to interact with MUNC, that's M-U-N-C, 
13-4 to facilitate lytic granule exocytosis. And where that goes down at is the immunological synapse, again occurring on NKs and CD8 positive T cells. So they had several patients that they were looking at. They were all related, right? Remember, this is a disease that comes up from consanguinity, right? Consanguinous events. So the two patients they're going to really be doing a pathophenotypic understanding of here have the following mutations. They have a homozygous mutation, one of the patients called patient six, in the RAB27A and then the ACAD9. But patient six, the FBPase was not described. Okay. Patient number eight has the same mutations in RAB27A and FBP1, I mean, and in ACAD9, but it also possesses, that individual also possesses um, homozygous mutation in the FBPase one. Okay. It has a slightly different pathophenotype presentation. Okay. So now you understand where we're at. Because the study that we're looking at was conducted specifically on patient six and on patient eight. Okay, so that's the point. So they did whole exome sequencing. And again, they did it on those two patients, six and eight. Remember, six has the mutations in the RAB and the ACAD. And patient eight has those mutations plus the FBPAs. So the phenotype of the natural killer cells, as we've been saying these last several lectures, will go through functional, structural and functional changes during the life cycle of the natural killer cell. So during differentiation and activation. And what you will get in a natural killer cell population is a heterogeneous mix of subpopulations of various NK cells expressing alternate surface receptors and generating effector molecules, signal proteins, and therefore having a differential functional sequelae. Now, NK cell differentiation itself is very complex, but most of it is worked out, but not all of it, because there's a great deal of epigenetic modification, which I started to get into, I think, two lectures ago, that has to do with the production of the pro-inflammatory cytokines, the effector part of the NK cell, right? Not the cytotoxic part. Remember, we were separating that out. I'm sure you do. That trimethylated lysine residue uh, on um, histone 3, right? Uh, lysine residue is uh, 27. Okay, now... Those are all epigenetic changes we have covered. Natural killer cells will also lose the expression of the NKG2A CD94 receptor. And they'll begin to express, when they lose the expression of that receptor, the inhibitory killer cell immunoglobulin-like receptors. They have a cute little name. They're called KIRs, K-I-Rs as well as the cluster of differentiation, CD57, 
which of course is a cell maturation marker for NKs. That's why we talked about at the beginning of our lectures. The inaugural lecture on NKs, we talked about CD57. Now, sometimes, and in association, interestingly, with one of the induction processes which bring out this disease in these natural killer cells, cytomegalovirus infection, you can get highly differentiated NK cells that generate even more unique substrates. More unique is bad terminology. Will will generate unique substrates, substrates of adaptive-like cells that will express activating KIR and the NKG2C. Okay, remember the KIR is the killer cell immunoglobulin-like receptor, which is, plays a very significant role in natural killer cells, as you can tell. <clears throat> Beyond that, phenotypic alterations, proliferation, and functional activity of the NK cell progeny will also involve alterations in cytotoxicity and, as I um, alluded to, production of the pro cytokines. Now, individual NK cells and their progeny, the more we know about them, the more we're able to precisely diagnose and then understand these inborn errors of immunity. Okay? So that means the people that are studying this have to look at the equal, equal or unequal distribution of CD94 and the NKG2A or NKG2C because those form heterodimers in the plasma membrane and they play a role in differentiation. Okay? Because we know the function changes with the difference in, you know, by doing flow cytometry in, in the ornamentation of the membrane associated with those proteins. So the heterogeneity in NK cell cytotoxicity is related to the variable expression of those, and we've been pounding this for the last three lectures, variable expression of those activating and inhibitory receptors that we talked about initially, right? And remember that whole the whole concept that the NK cell has an inhibitory receptor. And if it finds MHC, class one in particular, it it stands down, right? Because that means that's self. But besides MHC, there are other proteins, in fact, lipids, which I told you we'll eventually get to, which also act as inhibitory receptors for NK. Because those signal self. Natural killer cell doesn't want to kill a healthy self, uh, organized, organized tissue-based cellular population, right? Of course not. Now, the level of anti-tumor natural killer cell cytotoxicity is dependent on that KIR differential repertoire. And the KIR repertoire comes on during net the natural process of NK cell differentiation. Okay, so all of this is really significant. Remember, these these KIRs are the real um, component in the natural killer cell population of cell surface markers that earmark the natural killer cell to be fully functional as a cytotoxic entity. Remember those KIRs, killer cell Ig 
immunoglobulin-like uh, receptors, immunoglobulin-like receptors. Now, they also measured natural killer cell or, or the uh, uh, CDA-positive T-cell degranulation, okay, because they have to study that as part of the cytotoxicity, right? <coughs> All right. So for analyses, I'm just going to run through some of these um, genotypes. CD3 minus CD56 positive. Now, what kind of what kind of lymphocyte is that going to be? If it doesn't have CD3, it's not going to be a normal T lymphocyte. It's going to be an NK cell. They were flow cytometrically gated and assessed for other surface expression markers. Uh, CD107A, for example. The difference between the percentage of NK cells expressing surface <coughs> bright CD107A after stimulation, I have to explain the stimulation. The stimulation was by <laughs> a cellular phenomenon known as K562 stimulation after incubation with medium alone. That was going to be called Delta CD107A, okay? Altering expression of that, you have to put the delta in front of it. So for analysis of the CTL degranulation, the genotype is CD3 positive, CD8 positive T cells. They're going to be stimulated with an antibody. The an it's simpler, right? An anti-CD3, CD28 um, laden on beads because this is all going to be done in such a way that you can uh, take these cells out of these patients and do all this in vitro work, right? And you're going to get a difference in the mean fluorescence intensity, the MFI of uh, for full cytometry, obviously, of CD107A expression and compare that with unstimulated controls. Okay, so everything's done with flow cytometry. So the stimulation platform applied in the current study with the use of a of this gene modified this is really I think this is really interesting a gene modified K562 feeder cell population that's right so you got feeder cells they're called K562s and those feeder cells have been transformed with a gene that codes for and then expresses a membrane-bound interleukin-21. So <clears throat> when they say that they stimulate with K562, they really mean they're stimulating with K562-MB interleukin-21, membrane-bound C21. They use that in combination with interleukin-2 because that has shown powerful inducement of stable, stable proliferation and a, an expansion of natural killer cells. Okay. So now you see why they use that system. I think it's a really cool system. So patient eight. Oh, I better check my time. I know I went over last time, but you know, you forgive me, I know. You must because I never get any bad feedback on the uh, feedback I get from uh, from all you folks that, listen, folks that listen to the podcast. Besides, we were at the end of that. You knew that. I only have a couple minutes. Real quickly, patient eight, remember, he has all of those mutations. <coughs> the Rab protein, the FBPase, and the um, um, deadrogenous, fatty acid deadrogenous. Patient eight shows a complex clinical phenotype. 
many metabolic abnormalities, one of them being an increase in creatine kinase. Okay, curious. There's also myopathy, right? And we knew that because these patients have really bad muscle contraction uh, capability. There's also a lot of abdominal pain in these poor people. And there is this hypoglycemia. And the muscle biopsy of patient 8 revealed a pathological increase in intracellular lipid droplets. What does that tell you? There's no lipase-mediated lipid utilization for beta-oxidation. Right? And you already know that because you've got that ACAD9 mutation. Right? Now, I'm going to get into what happens during catabolic episodes. Okay, so catabolic episodes, what does that mean to the cell? That means a bioenergetic state. When you're not, when the cell is not anabolic, that's synthesizing macromolecules, for example, or maybe getting ready for DNA synthesis for cell division. If the cell is in a catabolic mode, <coughs> it means it's turning all of its uh, reliable, useful carbon sources, like fatty acid, like amino acids after transamination, uh, and of course, like glucose to generate an EDH and every DH2 to run through the electron transport chain to synthesize ATP at full uh, maximum volume. <clears throat> so if that can't happen during the catabolic state, that's when you're going to see dysfunction in these natural killer cells when they're stimulated. Right? I'm going to stop here, and we're going to finish with more of this stimulating lecture on this paper. Uh, soon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra on my sister's birthday, the 16th of November, 2023 from Authentic Biochemistry on a Thursday afternoon, saying bye for now.